Uh. Oh my god, are you already drinking a beer at 11 o'clock? <laughs> no, I'm gay. It's sugar-free Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> Back from hiatus, back, back, back again. We're here doing the Pride episode. I have ever the Haas Hosteller on <laughs> that says, move, I'm gay. <laughs> it was my birthday gift to me. <laughs> Can you make the, the thwarp sound with your fan? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted that on the recording. <laughs> Warp. Well, thank you for joining me at the very, very end of the month. Uh, I know we've both been pretty busy and not mm-hmm. necessarily um, hold, upholding the gay agenda, just on the personal side, too. I have. I've been going out almost every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the month of Pride mean to you? To me, Pride is all about being is all about celebrating and being unapologetic for who you are and connecting with folks that also feel that same way. Um, I really love going out to pride events and meeting new people and like knowing that we all like have come so far and have wanted to be like want to be ourselves and we're all here part of this community. Um, And I also just think like queer folks are pretty friendly at, I mean, in general, but like specifically at Pride events, like we're all out here to like connect with each other um, and just celebrate who we are. And then also um, remembering and coming together, like all the ways that we need to rally and uh, support folks that like have been alienated, I guess, Mm -hmm. as uh, we have, and we've come so far as a queer community, but there is lots of work that still needs to be done. Okay. And so I'm going to Pride events for all the inclusivity and all the conversations you can have with people about um, the agenda, the very <laughs> long agenda. <laughs> so yeah, and all, overall celebrating and um, working toward smashing the patri- patriarchy is what pride means no I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you know it while it's a celebration you know based on its roots and based on not just what's happening now but the the what we continue to push for like there's still so many communities uh you know within us whether it's uh black or brown or trans that are continuing to be just persecuted really and like just, when I think when I first started going to pride events, you know, I want to say more than 10 years ago, it was not as big and not as inclusive as it is now. And it's uh, it continues to be very like, oh, like warm heart feeling every time you go out there to just kind of see yeah, that same like joy of finding community. Um, and yeah, and when you say like friendly, it, it really is just like an excitement to be like, I'm not alone. Yeah. Like there's so many people with the same story that, you know, have gone through what I have that understand exactly the the journey. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like that, that camaraderie, that's really what it's all about that any kind of marginalized community needs. 
um, speaking of, I just want to, because this is going to be our first chapter, um, really touching on our first openly queer character, um, that I wanted to maybe kind of talk about like our own personal journeys as far as um, discovering your own identity, sexuality, um, and you're folding yourself into the queer community. Folding? Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's been quite the journey. I'm feeling like as I reach like the age and the stage and um, and being queer where I'm at now, I feel like a lot more solid with who I am. Um, I feel like I've come out quite a few times in this way that's like, this is who I am. Like I finally figured it out. Like I have this label now, I've got this identity, like got myself figured out and now I'm happy. But each time I'd be happy with myself for a little bit, but then there is still something that wasn't quite fully me yet. And, you know, like back when I was a teenager, but even like a younger adult, I at least had never heard of like what a non-binary person was or that you're, or that there were other gender options for you, like gender, like anything like that. Um, but once I heard about that it still took me a couple years to be like yeah that is me mm -hmm. so what I think is really cool that you know we're living in this queer era where there's a lot more um where there are a lot more terms that folks can use yeah. to like try to describe themselves and try to like figure out who they are um but also we're allowed to shift between them too like, I want to try this out for a little bit, see if that works for me. And you're within a community that's down to call you whatever you want, mm -hmm. and test out these new identities for you. Um, so going from like, you know, first coming out as like bi and then a lesbian. And then I just heard like more what queer meant. And I was just that. And now I'm non-binary. And it finally feels like this is what I was working up to since as long as I can remember. Um, and that's my little, that's my little journey. <laughs> the very simplified version. <laughs> um, no, I, I definitely feel what you're saying about um, the development of just like the terminology uh, because same when I was, you know, middle school, high school, I didn't have any of those words or ideas to really describe how I felt, not that I was, you know, fully aware. I was just like, everybody thinks curls are pretty. <laughs> like <laughs> everybody yeah. wants to make out with their best friend. It's <laughs> just like, was I ever like initially attracted to cis men, or was that just what I was told to do? And I found ones that I have liked along the way, hmm. kind of thing. Um, now that I have a lot of the the terms that I hadn't before, like I had always said I was bi, but once, you know, pansexual came out, I was like, oh yes, thank you. Like, this is what yeah. I've been saying. Like, yeah. it's not just one or, you know, one, two, like these categories. It's just, I don't care if I like your vibe, I like your vibe. And that's really it. Um, can you, can you um, pick that apart a little bit more for, sure. for I was actually like just talking about this the other day. Um, so yeah. for me, and I know this is kind of maybe the, um, umbrella of it um is bisexual is generally like I like more than one gender it could be male and female it could be this and that it, it's just kind of 
I like these categories mm-hmm. and I don't really like these categories um, mm-hmm. as far as my attraction. Um, for me, for Pan, it's regardless. It's what your gender is, is not the factor that makes me attracted to you. Mm-hmm. It can be anything in between. It could be completely off the binary. I really don't care. Um, but and I respect that that's important to you as part of your identity. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'm blind to it kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it, it's that's not the determining factor for me at all. Yeah, just when I see folks like dressed up expressing themselves or not even dressed up like they're just being like literally themselves mm-hmm. and I think that's what's so what I love so much about like the pol- the queer community and being poly too of like there being such an expression between like I really I'm admiring the way this person looks and I would like I kind of want to adopt that is like kind yeah. of a form of like a compliment too like you've inspired me so much by being yourself that now I want to be myself more, even yeah. if I'm like kind of stealing, like quote unquote stealing from yeah. your look or like now I just want to go home and like dress up and be myself. Gotta, more gotta go online shop like, and go find buy a new stuff. outfit or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. No, and it's, it's, I think it's definitely like attractive, not just on a physical, but like mental level when you see somebody living as their most authentic self, because it's like, oh, if you're in touch enough to live that way, like that's usually like a good sign that you're a good partner kind of thing because you're, you know, you can't be a good partner without being in touch with yourself. That's true. That's definitely, I guess we would call that a green flag. Yes, that is a green flag. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So tell me more about Delinda. This is the first uh, chapter of her we're getting introduced um, to this new character can you kind of tell me um, what the reader can kind of expect going into this yeah so it's funny that this is like her first official one because as far as like being on this podcast like we've talked about her pretty much every chapter as we've discussed um, plots and characters sort of thing it's always been somebody that we've touched on because she is so you know big and pivotal and definitely like a fan favorite I would say yeah yeah um yeah, like people really seem to be rooting for her, you know, uh-huh. so far. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's um, I didn't introduce her later because she's the, the opposite view. And I really wanted to set up everybody else as kind of like, oh, like this is the story. This is the main story. Um, you know, these are all the good guys, so to speak. And then all of a sudden it switches to you're like, hey, that's not necessarily true it's just a side it's some people and that's the same case for Delinda too you're getting that inside view on what's going on in Star Palace um you get your actual firsthand you know witness account of a uh, cross and fucking what kind of person he is and um yeah. how he's running things from inside his little ivory tower mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know as we get through the chapter it's not Uh, I think she's interesting to read her chapters also because she's disabled as well. Um, And so it was kind of, it's, I want to say like fun to write her, to try to work around uh, dialogue, trying to work around, you know, her not being able to have dialogue and really seeing how she has, you know, kind of formed a nonverbal language with some of the people around her. Um, But 
you know, she definitely still feels trapped in not having her speech ability. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she, yeah, just very multifaceted with all the things that she's dealing with, because as we don't really get into it in this one, we do touch on that she um, does, she's a little more mask presenting for sure, um, but she doesn't do it necessarily because she's having, uh, you know, gender dysphoria or anything. It's, uh, she thinks that in this patriarchal society, if she's a little more mask presenting, hopefully she'll be taking a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that, you know, could definitely be still like confusing for her and other people around her, that's just kind of how she's navigating this world. Um, but then as we get, I don't think barely touch on it in this book, but definitely for the next one, you'll see that she's, she's gay. She's hundred percent gay. There's no she will not fuck a man <laughs> she's not interested mm-hmm. in them at all um but right and, now we don't know that yeah it's kind of interesting like I mean once like you read it and get it get into it but it's kind of cool I think like how you write this chapter is really like paying attention more to like your surroundings and like getting to describe like what she's experiencing more I don't know like her different way of like communicating and yeah. there's only like like we get to know like inside her head more as the reader like from the author's perspective and less of like what and then everyone else like has this other idea of her yeah and um I know there's like I don't want to say like slurs but kind of definitely things tossed out at her at this book that are kind of like insinuating that you know oh you know why would we ever put her in charge she can't have an heir because she just won't fuck a man kind of thing yeah um how did she get to the position that she was at with her disability and being a woman it so she was not born with it one um she's only been mute for um it's been under 10 years but you know a good chunk of her life but not forever to where Mm -hmm. she'd already kind of established she's the firstborn child so if there was no male born after her you know they would have figured out a way to make her queen Mm -hmm. but there was um patriarchy and so her younger brother, who she finds to be completely incompetent, took the crown after their father died. Mm-hmm. And um, she had been being you know, groomed for it beforehand and then was basically kind of tossed aside as soon as there's um, a male to take over. Mm-hmm. So she you know, is a very firm believer in hard work will pay off. Like if I do all these things, I will get rewarded for it later. And that's how she's really kind of rose to her um, military position. It's like, oh, well, I can't be queen. So I guess I'll just, I got to be in charge of something though. And mm-hmm. she wants, she wants power. That is her goal. She wants the recognition for the work that she's done. Um, she wants the power. She wants to be the person that makes the decisions. She saw her father have it. And she still believes that that is her birthright. That's what she's entitled to. That's what she deserves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm sure it's frustrating seeing somebody who you don't think is doing a good job in your position <laughs> going, hmm, that should have been me. Uh, I would have done this. And I would have done this. I mm-hmm. would have done that. Mm-hmm. She just needs, you know what she needs? She needs a big old move. <laughs> she needs a fan move that says, move, I'm gay. <laughs> I'm gay. <laughs> and just stomp down those hallways in her big old boots. <laughs> if, if this was modern times, she'd be wearing Doc Martens, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Chapter 12, The Rotting Throne, July 1849, at Star Palace, the Celestial Capital. Most of the palace was asleep, but not Delinda Riddall. Her heeled boots announced her presence as she walked across the richly colored rugs laying across the stone floor of the castle. Her brother had summoned her to the throne room, or what used to be a throne room. Now it was Cross's cell. The room would surely also be his grave. Guards uniformed in scarlet and gold opened the throne room doors as she approached. The room stunk. It smelled of must and unwashed bodies. It was rare for Cross to ever be exposed to the outside air. The doors slammed heavily behind her as the guards stepped back and outside. Six more bodyguards stood around the king on his rotting seat. Cobwebs covered the ornate designs in the wood. The blue paint of the cerulean's beneath had been slathered with Riddall's scarlet and gold, but the paint was chipping, revealing the ocean beneath. The large throne of old dark wood leaned to the side where it was collapsing in upon itself. Cross rested his chin on his fist as he smugly watched Alinda approach. The king's face was pale and sullen. He rarely ate for fear of being poisoned. His once vigorous frame had grown frail. His limbs were skeletal, and his face looked drawn and sunken. His knuckles and elbows looked like obscene knobs growing under his skin, trying to burst through the paper-thin barrier. His golden hair had once shone, like the new day, but had long since turned white and brittle. He looked like a sickly child in an oversized chair instead of a man in his prime age. His eyes were always wide and squirrely with apprehensions. But those apprehensions, however, were rightly placed. Her great-grandfather, Recall Riddall, seized the throne from the Cerulians in the name of his son, Surrey I. Vale Hutton remained in constant internal conflict. Many opposed Riddall rule, but those voices soon fell silent. Political peril and bloodshed continued to spring to the surface through Surrey the First's reign, but then Vale Hutton entered its first stage of peace under Surrey the Second's reign. This was their father, King Surrey Radal the Second, a burly man with a burly soul. Their father had made a long-standing peace treaty with Tuaga after his army crushed the Tuagan forces at the last battle of the Nige Desert. Even the succession of Snanka was done on paper and not on the battlefield, granting King Aconite his own dominion over his lifeless kingdom. King Aconite thought he had won by getting a crown, but he had no knowledge of the crops and gold Vale Hutton saved by cutting off his tumor of a country. Delinda was the elder of Saray's two children, born when he was still a teenaged prince. Even for the ye few years when she had been an only child, and her mother struggled to again conceive, she was underestimated due to her gender. Delinda seemed to be the only one to know what she was capable of. Once a son was born, Delinda was left by the wayside to teach and train herself for leadership, and so it had been since. When she and Cross were both counting past their thirtieth birthdays, their father was still as strong and viral as he had been in his youth. Though he kept his frustrations to himself, Delinda knew that her brother was lusting for the crown. 
he had been groomed for his entire life, told that it was his birthright and destiny. Delinda couldn't help but to scoff at his entitlement. She remembered the snowy night over twelve years ago when she was awakened by a clamor throughout the castle. It had been an unusually cold winter that year. Snow was uncommon in the south, and it continued to fall well into the early spring. She rose from her bed and tied her long dark hair into a braid over her shoulder. She stepped out of her chambers and into the utter chaos. Servants, guards, diplomats, and numerous lords and ladies visiting the capital scuttled about the halls, all talking noisily and seemingly walking in no particular direction. She wandered towards the throne room, hoping her father would have an answers. People ran about with jewels and other finery gripped in their arms, some holding as much as they could possibly carry. Her bare feet grew cold against the stone flooring where rugs were missing. The throngs ebbed and flowed around her, but never consumed her. She pushed open the heavy ebony doors with their hastily laid coat of red paint that covered the crest of the cerulean's. The throne room was deathly silent. She clutched her woolen robe tighter around her as she approached the throne. Soldiers stood along the red carpet that marked the path to the king's chair. The uniforms were crisply pressed and utterly unmarred. All stood facing the throne. Delinda slowly placed one foot in front of the other as she approached the chair. It was not her father seated there. It was cross. Her brother's golden hair shone like a gauze under his gold crown, ornamented with red stones. His head was raised high, and he looked down at her approaching. Their eyes met, and she knew what had happened. Cross had killed Saray, and no one knew but her. How dare you come before the king in your nightdress? He had drawled that night. Now Cross was only a shadow of a man he used to be. His sickly frame made him look much older than his thirties. When she had first seen him upon her father's throne that February night, he looked like he was meant to be on Vale Hutton's highest seat. Now his madness was making the entire country ill. She could see the scene were playing over and over across his eyes. He had strangled their father in his sleep. The most intimate murder. The guilt must have been eating him from the inside. Tonight, Cross had called her to council. All gatherings were held in the throne room, seeing that Cross never left it except to retreat to his impregnable chambers in the South Tower. Usually, the two of them would be alone, save his countless bodyguards, so she was surprised to see four councillors still seated at the table below the throne. Generally, none of Cross's other advisers were awake at the hours in which Delinda resided. For years, she had been the knight's captive. Cross shifted his weight to the side and rested his taut face on a pale, bony hand. He blinked slowly as he watched her approach. She bowed curtly before him and waited for him to speak. He continued to glare down at her in silence. Why do you dress like that? He motioned to her entire person with a sour look on his face. She wore the same uniform that she demanded her men wore, a black linen shirt under a dark blue coachman coat with black breeches 
tucked into heavy riding boots. She had always felt more at home in men's clothes than in skirts. Perhaps it was because they made her feel more powerful, as if her attire would allow her to be taken more seriously by officers and councilmen, or perhaps she just felt more at home dressed that way. She never felt like herself in silks, lace, and taffeta. It made her feel like she was an actor in costume. She also found it easier to avoid courtship advances in her younger years every time she pulled on breeches and picked up a sword. She made no response to the king, though she tugged at the sleeves of her collared tunic to make sure they fully covered her wrists. She clasped her hands behind her and waited for orders. He was just wind howling around a mountain. He would never topple her. His voice was raspy and accompanied by taxing breaths. Diaz, only living child, was still at his estate in Baden. I propose to our uncle to arrange a marriage between us and end any question of succession, but the imbecile refused. I sent men to collect her, but she had already vanished. I am certain she had help. She's young and stupid. He coughed heavily, a dry, coarse cough. She's likely headed east to Piasis. She has family from her mother's side there. I need you to intercept her before she reaches Piasis. Bring her here alive. He began to cough again and quickly waved her away in dismissal. What if the Tiver reservation, the mercenaries, are chomping at the bit? One of the counselors questioned the king. Just finish off the dirt worshippers, she heard Crass say as she passed. Guards closed the throne room doors behind her as she exited. The paint was beginning to chip off, revealing the blue and white swirls beneath. She would have to leave the following night, for dawn was already too close, and she dared not risk being outside when the sun rose. Living in the dark was the relentless reminder of the day she had tried to play God. She had meddled with the old ways of the godsmores and paid the price. A second pair of footsteps fell in, in time behind her. Her colonel, Basalt Lucera, had been loyally awaiting her. She allowed herself to smile with him by her side. She valued his strength as well as his devotion to her as his leader. His presence made her feel as though she could accomplish anything. Other women at court swooned about how strikingly handsome Basalt was, but he was hers to command. His shoulder-length hair was as black as the night she thrived in, and his twisted beard ascended his strong jaw. A leather patch was worn over his left eye and encircled the rest of his head, hiding the open orifice of an injury he had received years before. He towered over her, and his broad shoulders dwarfed her smaller frame. Dawn is approaching, my lady, his baritone voice told her. Are you returning to your room? She stopped at the foot of the stairs that led underground, her prison during the daylight hours. He faced her. She stared up into his remaining eye. The color was so dark she couldn't see his pupil. Should I prepare the elites for tomorrow night? He asked her. She nodded in response and held up six fingers. I will have them ready before nightfall, he confirmed to her. He turned to leave her to retire, then hesitated. I wish I could hear your voice as before, he said, almost tenderly. To that, she didn't smile. She almost opened her mouth to reply, a habit she had only recently broken. 
she left him at the top of the stairs and retired to her room for the day. She latched the heavy iron lock and then rested on her bed. She would light candles if the, she had company, but she had been in the dark for so long she had already memorized where everything in her room was. She felt deprived of too many senses. She did miss the sun, and of course she missed her voice. The next time she had found Cross alone after he murder, murdered her father, she demanded he admit to her the truth. He continued to lie. She threatened to expose him. As she had turned to storm out of the room, he brought down a heavy iron candlestick over her head. She didn't awake for two weeks, and she had not been able to speak since. Yet still, she pressed on and worsened her fate. The silence made her alone. Not many of the men she commanded besides Basalt could read or write. She was isolated, even though she was surrounded. The world moved around her as she stood still. She felt the respect she had worked so hard to claim fade into pity. Delinda Riddall was not one to be pitied. After a year of utter loneliness, she traveled to the cavern of the Third Eye, in the far north of the Godsmorian's land, and overlooking the sea. It was the holiest site of the Godsmore's people, long since abandoned after they were relocated to the Tiver Reservation. Any Godsmorian seeking to reach the northern shore would have to cross pass with the thousands of greth that settled across the valley. It was said that the elders of the Godsmores could speak to the earth, and that it was the old flow of life itself that was embodied in the cavern. It was an ancient place where the earth could hear its children speak. The cavern should have been pitch black, yet all the rock was illuminated by an eerie blue glow. Her men waited outside as she entered the holy site. She immediately noted the three openings in the ceiling of the cave, demonstrating its name. The center one was the largest and slightly elevated over the other two openings. Delinda could see the cloudy gray sky typical of the coast through the eyes. After a short explorative walk, she found the cave empty of anything but salt water dripping from stalactites. No life scurried upon the ground or crawled upon the walls, like it did just outside the entrance to the cave. Delinda sat and meditated for hours, maybe days, trying to gain some knowledge of her future. What path should she take? What would be the consequences if she rebelled against her patricidal brother? She prayed for her voice to return and give her the power to right the kingdom. No answer ever came. Her desire began to turn to desperation. Her mind kept returning to what she had read of the deep magic in an ancient book recovered from the Godsmore's people years before. It indicated that sometimes a sacrifice must be given to receive, and the closer to human, the more powerful. She demanded an orphan be brought to her in the cave. She at least had enough heart not to tear a family apart. She'd relieve the country of one hungry, useless mouth to feed. Her men soon captured a child and left alone on the Godsmores. A scared, starving little girl. She had the typical white blonde hair and sea-green eyes of the naval, native people, though she had only two stars on her face, as if her constellation was incomplete. Delinda knew nothing of the meaning of any stars and paid it no mind. The frightened youth seemed to calm 
for a moment when she was passed from basalt's rough calloused hands into her own feminine ones perhaps she thought she was safe she spilled the child's blood on the sacred ground delinda did this herself with her own hands and blade the cave was deathly silent as the crimson pool began to spread across the glowing blue floor delinda waited but no vision or dream ever came no sound manifested when she tried to speak it was all for naught the abysmal pit she felt in her gut was not for the regret of murdering an innocent but also for her own failure and hopelessness it seemed she would be doomed to silence for the rest of her life thinking it was all futile after delinda rose from the small corpse on the ground and wiped her hands on her dark coat she had thought no answer had come from the earth until the moment she stepped into the sunlight instantly her skin began to burn and blister until basalt covered her with blankets and returned her to the darkness of the cave until night fell the deep had passed judgment upon her and found the princess wanting and so she princess delinda Radal of star palace the celestial capital became known as the dark star the last time she had seen daylight it had nearly killed her and we're and queer back with <laughs> anyway okay um so i had a couple questions um since this is delinda this chapter is kind of the first character that we're being introduced to that is um that is obviously queer and i was just wondering um like she has this internal struggle going on with herself but it doesn't to me at least seem like the struggle to be queer is very externalized like there's not a lot of mm -hmm. outside pressure sure. um, saying that she can or can't be as like there's not like a lot of homophobia at least from what I, from what i've read yeah um, and you know it seems like there's a there's the external pressure the fact that she's a woman and that she's disabled but not specifically like mm -hmm. um homophobia so can you can you talk about how the differences between our world obviously having patriarchy and homophobia and your world maybe not so much yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think the only reason that maybe Delinda even gets a little bit of it is because of her position to where um, she's got a lot of uh, eyes on her as part of the royal family. And if for, you know, any reason she becomes queen, um, you know, she's going to have to have an heir. Like it could really mess up the sign of uh, the line of succession if she's won't have a child because she won't mm -hmm. fuck a man kind of thing. Um, so the only kind of like you know whispers or like even like misgivings that people have with uh her like you know kind of being a little more masculine presenting and maybe making fun of her being like oh i bet she's gay kind of thing is mm -hmm. really kind of revolving around her position if she was just anybody else i i don't think that that would even be an issue um i did not really take any put any thought or take any time into putting homophobia into my world. Um, it is not something that people find as you know, anybody's lesser than. Um, it's not, it's just not an issue really. And 
I, you know, it, it's kind of funny reflecting on it because it's not like I necessarily did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. And like, even a lot of the queer characters I have, it just kind of happened that way. Just like with anything mm-hmm. the characters do, it usually, they, they just tell me about themselves as things go mm-hmm. on, <laughs> almost. Like, I mean, is that, as a, from an author's perspective too, does that kind of translate into like how you feel like, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of an obvious question. Like mm-hmm. if I were to make a perfect world, um, this is how I would see. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that, but I mean, obviously they deal with patriarchal issues or, you know, Delinda wouldn't have been passed over for an incompetent younger brother um, yeah. or just anything like that. Um, but I, I would say even that is more amplified uh, within the crown and not so much within everyday people. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, with that issue, that's, you know, something that I've grown up with, I've witnessed, I've seen that affects my everyday life and the lives of everybody around me. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe also a little bit of that classically fantasy worlds are generally patriarchal because there's um, a uh, some kind of monarchy going on and usually lines of succession are patriarchal. And there's something that the main characters have to smash. It, no, no kidding. Yeah, it really creates like, uh, yeah, the, the the fight, the good fight is always mm-hmm. kind of something like that. So I think that's definitely where that originated from and why that remained. And then as far as like people not really caring about anybody's sexuality or gender identity in this world, it's just kind of translated as something that I find should, you know, shouldn't be an issue. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how Delinda um develops at least like what um like what the audience is going to continue to think of her because she is on the like quote-unquote bad bad people villain side sure the way we're kind of rooting for her because Mm -hmm. she's like because she's disabled like because she's from this she got passed over and she like wants her rightful place Mm -hmm. believes it's her place and I guess it'll be kind of interesting to see like if we're going to continue rooting for her but also like some of the villain like most villains in stories are way more interesting than like for sure yeah (laughs) yeah um get a few more facets in there because they're doing maybe some bad things and I think it is important to note that you know all of these characters have their own POV the ones that you're reading so mm-hmm. like even when you read Ashes, you know, he thinks that he's the shit. He thinks he's this badass. But when you read other people's chapters, you know, that's not true. And, yeah. you know, keep that in mind for other people. She thinks she's deserving and capable. But mm-hmm. what are the things is, she, you know, she not mentioning about herself and not being real with that mm-hmm. um, make some of those thoughts not true? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So then speaking of other characters perspectives um what are there any other characters that we can look forward to that also are queer or queer questioning in your world yeah um she's not going to be introduced too much later much as Linda was but we have um the godsmorian woman jane that will come in that is um blatantly bisexual um she's got has uh both a male and female partner in the scan- span of the book when I really think about like Nalahi or um, later Helen, 
neither of Mm -hmm. them are very interested in relationships or anything um, to where I would wouldn't be off put to put Nalahi under um, an asexual aromantic category and Helen definitely under aromantic mm-hmm. um, and you know they're part of the community too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah same thing with Cross too like he has that is not on his fucking radar at all um, no, he's too power hungry though yeah he, he's thinking he about other that. stuff mm-hmm. yeah um, and then but the other two can sit with us yeah, they could do with us for sure. Um, and then Crisse has been introduced already. And I think Ronick actually does mention that she's taken women to bed kind of thing, just casually. I would say that she does prefer men, but she definitely is either by or pan. You know, mm-hmm. it might like as far as um, being with women, it might just be a sexual thing and not necessarily a romantic thing. I kind of see like what you were talking about earlier too of like a lot of like these characters that we've been introduced to some of them and some of them not so much yet so we'll see but like Chrisé for instance like Mm -hmm. her being bisexual or pan wasn't something that's like super outspoken as if it's like something she's had to work mm-hmm. for, like work in the yes. world to be. yeah it's she just, hasn't had to come out ever it just is what it is yeah all right so we've done a lot of laughing today um and it's unfortunate that in the midst of pride month something so um devastating to the community and to anybody with the uterus um with Roe v. Wade being overturned has happened and really um, put some rain on our rainbows. Yeah, whichever way you need to cope, if you need to mourn, if you need to drink, if you need to find other people to talk to about it, be outraged, be upset, be sad, be hurt, but we still have to, you know, keep fighting. And don't let the, this peak of mobilization that we're all feeling right now, go away I suppose because it's not going to I mean it's not going to go away like they they just proved that they were able to overturn something that was in place for decades and who's to say they can't overturn more anything else yeah and do it overnight with no warning we only knew this was coming because there was a leak and I really doubt there's going to be another one for whatever the next thing is yeah so keep paying attention even though it really sucks like set a timer set yourself some boundaries for like how often you look at these things and then clear yourself but pay attention and check in with your loved ones I guess for me to kind of say I think I kind of touched on it earlier that like you know this is the best time to be queer because we have like all Mm -hmm. these different terms now but like you know we can be queer here like for the most part and like we can't in like other places of the world. Yeah. So like I never overlook that. And I never overlook that like we're here in this decade. Like I'm able to like personally be out mm-hmm. at my university and like that mm-hmm. still has like a ton of issues, but like I'm able yeah. to do that. And so it's hard to say, like, you know, we have all of these freedoms and it's the best time to like be able to be free and be yourself right now when like shit like this is so much progress has been just like thrown to the wayside is yeah. what it feels like at least within something being overturned like this so yeah. easily no and then the fear of what's next because it was pretty clear that um 
gay marriage and contraceptions are next up on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, I hope this is the death throes of a dying ideology. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, their their last stand, their last fight that they can do, but it could not be also. Yeah. I don't really, we don't really know what's going to happen, but that's why it's important um, as often as you can, as much uh, battery power as you have to mm. check up on these things, they pay attention because they want us to, you know, they, that was a leak that happened, yeah. like you're saying. And so they want us to be distracted and not pay attention to the things that mm -hmm. they're able to do now from their position Yeah, yeah. that are able to do this keep paying attention and keep doing your research to donate to places that are actually working to make a difference anyway thanks so much for being on the show sorry we got a little dark and heavy there but it's always nice to see you and talk to you we have to when current events are what they are mm -hmm. and that's also like what pride is all about too it's not just about yeah. something like we talked about but it's talking about all this fucked up shit and you know fighting back isn't it ironic don't you think mm -hmm. <laughs> that it did happen during pride month to where it's just a reminder that yeah this is what we're this is what this we're is celebrating what everybody what get ready to throw your bricks um, so i don't know how long it'll be till the next episode um the way that things have been going <laughs> recently with my uh, consistency but um yeah, we thanks to anybody to who listened. Yeah, thank, but thanks to anybody who listened, and um, we hope that we were entertaining and helpful.